Give us a sync. Cool. Uh, so, all right. So, how do we want to start this one? Yeah, we we had a list of things to go over, and um, what we agreed on loosely, I yeah. would say. There's no. I think we we don't have any expectation to have a have a very well bounded kind of conversation, right? But uh, it is to talk about how to think critically about, in general, information, but more specific, how to navigate the landscape of information that we have. Yeah, exactly. In old days. So, uh, a lot of things we've been things we've been talking about lately are monitoring the news, how to monitor the news, what it means to monitor news, and then also what news means in general. Yes, and uh, I guess that takes us to a couple of different places from sort of a more philosophical perspective, uh, from epistemics to really, you know, what information is, how we can look at information, what evidence is, and then also to its direct pra practical applications in today, where we have multiple different media spheres they're competing for our attention and uh we have also aside from different outlets of media we also have different influencers people who are who've made a living out of uh influencing based on their opinion or also what they're paid uh to say their opinion is and uh the the difficulties of navigating all of that and actually coming out with something that reflects the the state of things on the ground in different places yeah i think Keeping it uh, within what we talked um, uh, before on our on, on the same room here, mm -hmm. um, we could we could we could look at it in different levels as well. So, um, receiving information can happen on the level of um, your, your neighbor telling you something um, to the mass into the mass media, and there is many different degrees between. So. Um, we can be talking. We can be talking about all of those different levels on which the transference of information happens, and we can be looking at uh, what is the, the because what I was going to say is actually uh, we had kind of like set our agenda as talking about well we didn't set an agenda we we talked about what was actually our purpose. Uh, our individual and personal purpose on uh, conducting science and uh, doing research, which is actually actually uh, uh, dealing with problems that matter. So if we're talking about the low level of receiving information, filtering information, we can talking we, we can talk about the very specifics, uh, the very the cognitive foundations of it and the philosophical definitions that you already, lay down that we have to talk about in order to clarify what are actually that we're talking about. But uh, talking about what matters, we have to look at how, um, how receiving information in this case in mass media affects the world that we live in. Yeah. Why don't you start us out there and then we can sort of break it down to more fundamentals as it becomes necessary. Yeah, sure. So, well, I think I think that's within this <laughs> aspect of how media, how the transference of information, how information is presented, how information is consumed, there's 
a lot to be talked about. I think it's very hard to narrow down to what actually is the hierarchical structure of what matters on this on this spectrum. We can talk about different different stuff. We can we can go directly to things like Chomsky and uh, the manufacturing of consent, which I think it became already a little bit outdated. Like uh, things really have 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 been happening really fast. So I think uh, even looking at Chomsky's ideas um, back there, I think that they cannot even provide me with uh, the perfect blueprint to what to talk about. So um, I don't remember it very well, but we're talking about uh, ownership of, of means of production of information. So, and we are talking about uh, within this kind of like Chomsky uh, idea on how um, the media as as, as this as this social uh, uh, the social phenomena uh, has in, in itself the whole uh, the, the structures that enable us to consent to things that we would not consent if we think critically about them. So the, the mechanisms are already in place. Uh, one of them is the ownership of media. So just uh, big companies owning the ability to put out their information for a very, very large amount of people. Um, I think that's very hard to translate to nowadays. Um, speed, capillarity, and range of... of uh, how information is transferred um ownership i think it's it's not the biggest of the issues at the moment i would say I, i'm not so sure obviously it, it, it does influences but we're talking about one anonymous viral video becoming widespread and convincing a lot of people um there are other things that we can talk about, but if you wanted to comment anything about ownership of the means of of of, of uh, transferring or providing information to people, yeah, I think it still play a role. I think that's really important to be talked about. I don't know if it's as it is on the top of the hierarchical um, um, the thematic of the issues that we see in the on the world today, but. You, you, you can tell me what you think. Yeah, uh, so ownership is an interesting thing because it's not just the ownership of the content production, but then it's also ownership of the content um, content um, curation. So what you end up having is a mix of things. You have potentially consolidation of the actual outlets of information, say uh, News Corp. You know, you have Rupert Murdoch mm -hmm. cu curating a lot of a lot of the information, a lot of the money that's being distributed is owned by uh, central centralized um, uh, group, groups of individuals. But then you also have uh, high degrees of consolidation of ownership in terms of the contents, like the actual, uh, sorry, the platforms that the content is di distributed on. Mm -hmm. So a, uh, a platform or a company like Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, although WhatsApp is 
probably to a slightly lesser degree important in this case. But um, when you have Facebook and Instagram, you have the the ways in which information is curated. You have also the ability for somebody to be on a platform or not. So you have exclusion criteria that they might implement. And then you also have the the algorithms that are in place, the decision criteria for actually displaying information for people. So I think in that sense, ownership ends up playing a big role because what we have is the production and also the distribution being highly consolidated. And they're, they're slightly different. And so I think in the past when you had something like uh, while television was also, it, it, we sort of moved towards greater consolidation in terms of distribution mm-hmm. from newspapers to television to digital. And I think that, that that posed a whole set of problems. But maybe one of the things in a, in a meta sense is that it's important to discuss both the problems with the system, which we're doing right now, which are things like ownership and among other things, uh, basically a lot of things that, that Chomsky does discuss in, in manufacturing of consent. He, discuss, he discusses more of the systemic problems, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but then we also have sort of the, the cognitive aspect of what does it mean to actually step back and consider these things? What does it mean to equip yourself with the understanding of, of how these systems manipulate you? Uh, and how they they play on our attention, and then also just having this this shift to a more critical lens mm-hmm. on on the media itself and mm-hmm. and just information that we consume. And of course, I can go very far in that. I guess the the ultimate endpoint of of a critical um, perspective is something very solipsistic. It's self indulgent almost. So how do we find the right balance from believing everything we hear? to thinking that we are the ultimate generators of, of reality. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in between the gullibility and the solipsism is uh, a balance that we want to achieve, which is something like reflecting the real world. And this sort of signal-noise ratio is ever-present in literally everything we do. There are degrees of extremes where we need to find the middle, where we're like, okay, these things are noise, but these are things that I have to take for granted. Otherwise, I'm just going to exist in a place which is you know, fundamentally removed from the rest of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, you you you, you nailed it. Uh, um, ownership still play a big role uh, in regard to um, not not only on the production but on the creating of, of the information and the the enabling of of of, of of spaces which are actually very structured. So if you take like Twitter back there, it has this amount of characters. So that's that's putting it's it's, it's putting something into the mix that uh, influences in a different way how people think about the information they are receiving within these platforms, for sure. And and an interesting sidebar is that Twitter. Elon Musk decided recently to hold a vote uh, by the users of Twitter of whether or not to allow Alex Jones, a prominent American conspiracy theorist, right-wing pundit, uh, back onto the platform. And users voted to allow allow him back on. And this is a, a purveyor of dangerous content. Elon Musk has also demonstrated himself to be a purveyor of dangerous content. Uh, but... It, this is an interesting thing where when 
when trying to understand how to feel about this decision, something where uh, an increasingly right-wing founder of a popular social media outlet allowing a established right-wing uh, mouthpiece back onto a very public platform uh, democratically, when it's, when it's democratically allowed to happen and not sort of this top-down power move. It's a very interesting thing, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I disagree with the decision and the process has a bunch of flaws because it has become increasingly right-wing anyway, so maybe it's a self-solving problem. But when, when we say something like the ownership is a problem because it consolidates too much power, mm -hmm. when somebody makes a democratic, mm -hmm. uh, allows it to be a democratic process, and it still has a problematic output, then we, of course, have all these different <laughs> problems uh, that we have to reconcile, opinions that we have to reconcile uh, all at once, where it's like, yeah, I'd, I'd rather this be democratic rather than consolidated. The democratic thing has an outcome that I don't like. What do we do there? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, for this specific case, I believe that um, the followership of Elon Musk it's definitely obsessed with the same kind of topic that the whole um, some part of the, the right wing uh, uh, troop is obsessed, which is a free speech. Right. Well, so uh, I believe that when Musk put it out there, he believed that this, this, this mindset would prevail on the voting. Yeah, exactly. It was kind of, it was, it was rigged in that sense, in that it was appealing to something that they already wanted. And the, the great irony, of course, is that he's promoting himself as a free speech advocate, but then, and this is just important in general in terms of critical lenses, is that he's somebody that has tried actively to silence dissenters. Um, there are multiple cases of this. I think that probably the most famous is when somebody had uh, posted a Twitter feed that... Uh, revealed his, his, the movements of his private jet mm -hmm. and because he's talking about sustainability, not uh, you know using renewable energy sources, the uh, renewable nature of the rockets and the rocket fuel of things like the Raptor engine. Uh, but then you have him flying, making really, uh, sort of being really unscrupulous in his use of his private jet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he paid to get that guy to shut down his account. And then he tried to petition Twitter to get that guy to shut down his account on like personal privacy rights mm -hmm. uh, of his whereabouts. But um, then when he took down Twitter, then when he took over Twitter, he took down that page. And mm -hmm. so th there's a lot around his uh, this this fake appeal to free speech, um, which is you know it, it's never even uh, even somebody who presents themselves an, as an absolutist mm -hmm. is never really an absolutist. No, absolutely not. What, what they mean with free speech is just that there is these things that we wanted to say and you say that we cannot say that. That's basically what they mean. They, they do not mean um, in any way a kind of a universal uh, 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 social agreement that everything that can be said should be said. Uh, they have absolutely, I think they don't even have considered this fully uh, so in the case of privacy, for example, uh, those are the same people that probably would say that uh, Julian Assange is a terrorist or that Chelsea uh, um, uh, Manet uh, should be put in jail and is a, is a traitor 
or Snowden, they, they probably, a lot of these people would definitely, I don't know if everyone, but uh, a lot of them would be very divided, at least. There would at <laughs> least this, be division, yeah. This, this is and I think this is where the, the right wing and the libertarians, sort of the right, mm. the right libertarians, yeah. Uh, sort of have disagreements where mm -hmm. the libertarians tend to be absolutist on things like this, but the right wing tend to be tend to have parameters that they set on, on what they actually want to hear. Yeah, I, that's what I said that I yeah. I would I, I would uh, bet on the divides because I have heard also both ways. There is the there is the the, the um, completely libertarian libertarians and um, and yeah, I we we had in Brazil some cases of uh, people. Well, actually, the, we, we had a lot uh, in Brazil, a lot of discussion on that direction, especially interesting. And I think that's a very interesting topic. We're, we're diverging a little bit into free speech, but I think that's fine. Is that how that became a thing into the... Well, I, it has always been, I believe, in the world, but how that became a topic very present within... Um, popular discourse in Brazil, the relationship between comedy and free speech. So I think that has been always been there. Um, but most recently, I think most, um, I think most likely, um, from my, from my perception is that it began with, uh, with increasing on criticizing on the left-wing government on the, on the at the beginning of uh, of 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 the century now, after the thousands, and um, the criticizing on Dilma Rousseff and the uh, uh, Workers' Party in Brazil, which was um, they were constantly criticized by the media. So there was no lack of criticizing on the government. The left criticized, including me, criticized the government all the time, and uh, we protest. Uh, for the mistakes that the the the, the, the center right uh, center left uh, uh, party uh, for for what they were doing, uh, but the comedians they had this idea that they could not talk about the government, and I do not know exactly where that idea came from. They wanted just to increase the criticizing on the government, but also that kind of like hijacked on this anti-political correct. Uh, sentiment. So they wanted to make jokes with everything and they wanted to be allowed to make jokes with everything. That became kind of like a movement in Brazil. That's all of these comedians, they were kind of like gathered together. It's really hard to have a, a, a left-wing uh, comedian. Um, uh, like someone that, uh, that would openly talk about that, like would openly uh, identify themselves as, a, as being a, um, a left person and it definitely they are but they wouldn't say actually and the ones that were not they would openly make it kind of like explicitly that they were right wing leaning because yes if i am against the political correct i'm actually against a type of people and this type of people are left people so I have to make jokes about feminism. I have to make jokes. I can. I, I am allowed to make jokes about blacks. I am allowed to to do all those things. So that's that's what free speech is. But obviously, they're just like surfing on the hype that it would give them. So as much outrageous things they would say, most 
evident they would become the media. And that's why a lot of them build their careers on being anti-political correct. That's the best way that they could find the spotlight, right? I think that my play also um, with some things that we can talk about the media today. So they, the idea that what is outrageous just gets the spotlight. Yeah, I think there, there's an interesting thing there. Um, <clears throat> you have, you have a, a group of people who are looking for something like a catharsis because they feel like they are being repressed by the things that they cannot say. Um, but the things that they that that typically those types of folks feel like they cannot say are the things that are used as tools of oppression for other people. And so there's this funny sort of system. And you, you kind of have a similar thing in, in American comedy. You have uh, a similar situation where you have a, a center-left government Slight, very slightly left of center at this point. Um, maybe just left in some social rhetoric, but fully centrist and sometimes even sort of right wing in in a lot of their military practices. But comedians, a lot of comedians, because some a lot of them tend to be there's a good amount that tend to be left leaning, don't want to criticize the government because they feel like it opens up their party's weaknesses when there's a point where it's so divided. So not a lot of people are actually doing that criticism because they're afraid that their jokes could then be taken out of context and utilized by the opposing party. So if I'm a left-leaning comedian and I make jokes about the left, the right could easily take that and then circulate it. And then all of a sudden on the internet, I'm a right-wing comedian, but actually I'm a left-wing comedian. Mm -hmm. So th there's an interesting thing. And then there was the same trend of some comedians uh, moving, being the, pulling themselves more towards the right because there are things, there's backlash that they're facing from the things that they've said mm -hmm. and i think of you know we're podcasting and probably one the most salient example is somebody like joe rogan who's never mm -hmm. left to begin with oh. um but has been increasingly moving uh towards the right mm -hmm. uh in in uh, leaps and bounds because there is this and this is sort of a as a cognitive scientist, like the, there's a clear sort of uh, identity triggering that's happening here where mm -hmm. he's being attacked, he's getting defensive, and then he's shifting his ideas towards the people who are embracing him in that sense. And he's moving literally further right and he's being pulled with every critique, he's moving further towards the right. Mm -hmm. And that, that's an interesting thing is that when people feel like they are no longer part of a particular group they thought they were a part of, either they cave like either we would have seen a set of apologies from Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. I don't know, six years, whatever it was, however many years ago, it, he started this sort of more pre precipitous shift towards the right now that he was ever left. But um, either he would have apologized and then shifted, or he would have dug his heels in and moved further right. Mm -hmm. And there's this interesting inflection point. And I think maybe that's what we try to do when we put on sort of like a public trials of opinion of individuals. Mm -hmm. We see whether they're going to apologize, cave, and change, mm -hmm. or if they're going to dig their heels in and shift further in that direction. And yeah. you, you probably got this interesting thing with yeah, the Brazil. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very similar. I think I, uh, that happened with some people for sure. Um, you see the shift, and um, there is there is a... When when there are, there are reactions, um, you create... 
like what usually happens is that you create this persona uh, called uh, cancel culture, uh, and this persona can be blamed by everything. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, it, it's funny how <laughs> how many times I've gotten this conversation of people say telling me otherwise. I'd say usually it's with people who are in the center or center left where they're like, yeah, but I just have a problem with cancel culture and people being canceled. And I'm like, what, and <laughs> what does cancel even mean? Yeah. Right. And it that's, doesn't it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. And the funny thing is how well that idea has been sold to people <laughs> yes. on the center and the right, where they think that cancel culture is a real thing. And they think that these, these public trials are not just shows so that people can, uh, pick a lane mm -hmm. and choose who to follow. Nobody's yeah. ever really canceled. Yeah. There are obviously, yeah. there are certain cases where actually highly relevant today where you get um, a more concrete example. You have three presidents of universities, major universities mm -hmm. um, in the United States, um, all women, all uh vocally calling for a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. um, they worded in, in different ways. Rather, because I don't have the exact transcripts in front of me, I will say expressed um, both condemnation of violence uh, in the Middle East um, by Hamas, but then also expressed concern for Palestinians mm -hmm. I, in, the, in, the, in the loosest sense, broadest sense. And they came under fire, and two of them were forced to resign. Mm -hmm. And then one of them, uh, uh, I think Dr. Gay at Harvard, uh, was the one who was allowed by Harvard to keep her position. But here you had this this thing where people vocalized a moral concern, a legitimate moral concern generated by the American government itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that the institutions they were part of, leading American institutions, forced uh, these, these individuals to step down from their positions. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, they're not being canceled and I think that that canceling idea doesn't have any weight to it at all whatsoever. But we do see this um, this impacting targeting of individuals to try to ruin their positions, their lives, their careers, etc. Yeah, no, for sure. But but I think that applies to a lot of folks on uh, on, on the right uh, spectrum. On like I, ha I have a, I have a like I think actually I keep it. That what happened to to the to 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 the three women, the three uh, um, directors, right? Mm -hmm. um, is the interests of the institution being prevailed? Mm -hmm. So um, same thing happened to other right wing folks. Like there is this uh, podcaster in Brazil as well, who were excluded. Like oh, yeah, he he said that to Brazil should have uh, or people who had. Uh, Nazi opinions should be able to express them, or we should take something like that. I, I'm not going to paraphrase. And he got um, obviously uh, um, he, he he got a backlash publicly, and uh, YouTube also uh, uh, demonetized his channel. And and um, you know we can have the debate of like uh, of Nazi opinions but I think that's not like we don't have to get to this point the point is just that YouTube doesn't want that you know uh, the other universities they don't want that we can talk about like the the the, the in, 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 in this person in Brazil you should, you should have noticed that like you are that's your that's your work 
you're representing, you're taking the front lead of an institution and this institution has interests. And that's what pays your bills. Like if you go against the, the interests of the institution you're representing, you, there's a trade-off there. Like you can, you, you, you can, you can and you, sh like, you, you should express your opinions. Um, you, obviously, if your opinion would, would be uh, harmful or directly uh, uh, in incentivate the harm of someone else, um, you should not do express this opinion. Um, but um, there is a trade-off there that you, you, you have, you have you, you're, you're playing or function within this structure. I'm not saying the structure, it's, it's fair. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. saying I'm saying that uh, we, 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 we should we should not look at the middleman. So th what happened is not that well that was people react to that and that was the cause of the the thing that happened to the life of this person. I think the the problem is the relationship between the institutions who have their own interests and the people who have their own opinions. And I think I keep uh, kind of a, it looks f it looks for me from my perspective. That's what happens yes. most of the time. I guess the problem is that goes back to this idea of ownership again, no. where you have uh, you know large consolidations of power, whether they're in the industry of education uh, or something like content platforms, and you have I think greater and greater needs for not that not that. Um, Governments are the ideal way to do this, but um, potentially like non-governmental organizations that create platforms that are used as public uh, messaging boards like Twitter, like YouTube, um, where it seems almost um, it, it may be hopefully in a in 100 years or a couple of hundred years, it might seem unthinkable to allow a private corporation to own a platform as central to everyone's lives as mm -hmm. YouTube or Twitter, where it should be in the public domain, it should mm -hmm. be a public good. Uh, it seems it, in in any city square, it, if you go back 300 years, if a, if a private businessman owned the only community message board where you could actually put messages, that would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And maybe that existed in places I don't actually know well enough. Um, but it, it's a ludicrous idea. But that's, that's the state of things now. And what we have is that generally uh, both... Uh, the anybody outside of the scope of the center is the one suffering from this. Mm -hmm. And so here you have these, you know, odd bedfellows where I think folks on the right and folk like farther right and folks on the left, especially farther left, mm -hmm. uh, have very um, similar goals in just the democratization or maybe the opening up mm -hmm. of, of different platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, obviously the people in the center they are able to manage uh, to 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 deliver a better product in terms of opinion. So that in and I think that this is where manufacturing consent comes in again, mm -hmm. because what the center is is defined by again the holders of power, mm -hmm. the sort of systemic uh, uh, agents, which you know don't have clean slates in terms of their past and how they accumulated the power to begin with. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones who are able to manufacture the consent to keep the center to the agendas that they want mm -hmm. to keep the center on. You know, it's Harvard's history 
of 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 abuses of perpetuating systemic injustices is large mm-hmm. and how they came to exist how they continue to exist is highly problematic in terms of also what they're invested in even um so the, there it's a problem of not just you know cuz the discussion could be framed as well if they're representing the center, it could be that they're just resent, representing the largest group of people, and therefore it seems democratic. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what the center is, is almost manufactured. Yeah. And I think that's the greatest problem. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I, I expressed more than once that uh, that not taking a stand is taking a stand yeah. for the status quo. And um, yeah, I think my whole point is that, well, the, the way that I see the word, and I think is the way that I see the transfer of information as well from from the cognitive perspective from the uh, from a even from a game theoretical perspective that uh, um people are serving uh self interests institutions are serving self interests maybe um maybe we can apply uh chomsky ideas to that to the point that uh, we can say well um this the functionality of this machine is to create products which are sellable. Even the they, the the center might not take the stand because um, because it thinks the status quo is good, but it sells better. And when it sells better and it's more profitable, things just go in the same direction. That's the same thing with, with like with many other things. <laughs> My opinion would be the same. The wars are the wars happened because someone is profitable because they're profitable. So someone profits from them, then they happen. If someone keeps profiting from them, they keep happen. Same thing with media. The flow of information from one side to the other. The manufacturing of consent is profitable. It might keep a war going on. It might keep some status quo uh, to to do not change. And while it's profitable, while it, it is profitable, um, the machine itself perpetuates itself. The machine perpetuates itself. So, kind of even in a, in a functionalist perspective. Yeah, I think, that, and this is sort of an interesting shift that we've seen war is good analogy for these things because you used to have war because somebody thought they could profit by winning a war against somebody else Mm -hmm. and so both sides were taking a gamble by engaging in the war Mm -hmm. or if obviously one is the obvious aggressor then they're taking the gamble by hoping to win and the other one's just trying to defend themselves and what, what have you but we've shifted to a place where many sides profit from a war. Sometimes it's both direct main aggressors are profiting from the war mm-hmm. because there's, there's, there are industries built around profiting of war regardless of whether the war is won, in quotes, or lost, in quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter <clears throat> whether um, how, how many lives are won or lost and sort of the economic um, gains, the geopolitical gains might net out in a decade or two regardless but the profits that are harvested from that win are immediate for for many parties involved and i think that's a that's a strange sort of difference because then the engagement in war is less risky 
And I think that that's one of the bigger problems. And we see the same. Especially when it's not you. Yeah, especially, <laughs> especially when they're proxy wars. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you have nothing to lose and you're just selling guns, which we've seen a lot of countries do, even neutral countries that technically don't engage in war, like Switzerland, you know, manufacturing tools of war. But you can take that same concept and then put it into uh, a lot of the business competition that we see from media narratives where sort of center-left and center-right media agencies basically rely on one another to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have something like CNN and Fox News in the United States, Mm -hmm. they literally rely on one another because they use each other for content Mm -hmm. because otherwise everything they say is bullshit. Uh, But it's, it's a similar type of thing of this everybody wins type of war as long as the war is happening. It's a similar thing with with social media where, yeah, technically they're competing with each other, but as long as we're using social media and that type of feedback loop is generated in us, we'll check many social media apps, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not they're competing. And I think that that's the same type of thing where the, the warfare of your attention, as long as you're you're wanting to pay attention to things and getting these rewards, it doesn't matter what you're looking at, you'll look at everything. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. There is, everywhere that you look in society today, there is this dialectic process going on. Uh, most of what do we see as different tribes, positions or whatever, they can they are feeding on each other to keep alive um well i think i think actually there is like so many different ways that wars can be profitable and i even like back on the past like you can yeah just convince two neighbors to 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 get into war while you do nothing and then you get the spoils afterwards today it's not only selling guns like wars change com- the complete landscape of the market like you can, if there is a war going on in Ukraine, you can sell more grains. So suddenly you, you're just a producer. Uh, uh, you're just you're just a country that exports a lot of rice. But it's interesting for you that people are dry, dying in another country mm-hmm. because it improves it increases your profit. So it, it is everywhere. And as you, as well said, uh, yeah, there there is a, there is wars going on on the media spectrum as well and uh, they aren't interested that the, the, those wars continue because then they have purpose right it's I think it's imp- I think that's that's also that's interesting right because um, um, we are talking about information and if we take the cognitive perspective of it very raw that we get information well obviously we can get information for confirmation bias but we can get information to for, for many different cognitive reasons, not only co- confirmation bias. Uh, but it seems like that information, or like let's say not information, but like the the, the channel or the the source, kind of like the that thing serves a purpose. So information has a purpose in itself its own thing yeah it's like we it's something maybe maybe a little bit like the, the free speech kind of kind of ideas like it, it it has the purpose of a revolution of like kind of like a humanity revolution towards a world and where for some reason it's going to be better because everybody can say whatever they so the, you know there is this intrinsic value on a specific kind of information 
which is not only in the service of 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 uh, to, to, uh, of the individual from the cognitive perspective. It's just like, well, I believe that this thing has to be said because of the thing itself, because of the the. the do you know what I mean? Is yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we're touching on exactly what I work on. Um, I, I guess the, the thing is that we all we all hold to various degrees beliefs. The beliefs tend to be prioritized relative to one another. Uh, my belief uh, in one thing might be more important to me than my belief in another thing. Um, and so when we're interacting with information, I think there are multiple different ways that we can do that interaction. One is directly with the information itself, where we say, okay, does this, is this congruent with what I already believe? And it can sort of confirm an existing belief exactly as we already believe it, or it can appeal to an existing belief and therefore we can uh, update or amend our belief in order to accommodate that information. So that's sort of like a, more of like a learning. Mm -hmm. But then when we're, when we're engaging with information itself, we have multiple ways to sort of test its validity. And maybe this is also getting at what we had spoken about speaking about, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Which is, that, um, which is that if I engage with content, if it doesn't immediately appeal to a belief, I can't make an immediate assessment on it. So uh, mm -hmm. I find information saying um, the way the economy is being managed is poor. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can, if that appeals to an existing belief, we're good. But if, if not, then I can look at the source that said it. And if maybe I already trust that source. So I trust person P, they said that, and I'm like, okay, great. So now I will, the economy is, is being mismanaged. I will accept my belief. But then if I look, if I don't know person P, I can look at the other things they've said and I can see if I agree with them. Say they agree with things like um, social welfare and you know, uh, universal healthcare, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, they, uh, they believe things that I believe. Therefore, maybe they're a good source of information as an economist. Mm -hmm. So I can look at the other information the source has produced. So like one degree removed from the information itself. Then if I don't know that person, then I can go two degree removes. I can just look at the other people that agree with that person. Mm -hmm. So I go to person Q and person Q believes the things I believe mm -hmm. and person Q agrees with person P. So now all of a sudden I go to person P again. And so there's this interesting sort of way that we, we look for the validity of information and we do this rapid searches to see what's congruent with what we believe and what's incongruent and then make, make those assessments. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things is when, uh, the belief that a particular source is correct can uh, be more prioritized than the belief that a certain thing is correct. So say I believe that, um, you know, the infectious disease expert in the United States, Anthony Fauci, uh, is, ha gives accurate information. Um, and he says something about how the percentage of usefulness that masks have against spreading disease. If my, if my belief that masks are 100% effective is more important to me, more prioritized than the belief that Anthony Fauci is correct, then I will say, well, Anthony Fauci then, because he thinks that masks are 50% effective, um, I think that maybe I uh, diminish his importance in this context, mm. right? Because I, I have a belief and I think that belief is more important than Anthony Fauci. If I think the inverse, that, that Fauci, that my belief that Fauci is correct is more important than my belief that masks are 100% effective, then I'll update my belief about masks in light of Anthony Fauci. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's this interesting contrast between the hierarchy of the beliefs we maintain mm-hmm. and then the information we interact with. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was, when you started to talk about it, I was just thinking about um, the hierarchy of beliefs and um, that should be, because I agree with you, I agree with what, what you say, but to look at the source of some some kind of problems, let's say, we would have to look at uh, uh, how those beliefs are organized and w- w- what is on top there, keeping um, keeping the, the the rest of the cascade effect uh, continue, right? So, but I know I know that um, you have a good answer for that. But like, how the, how that um, how that would be? Can you could you explain to me how that would be different from the thing that I always talk about? It's prestige bias, which I I'm critical about, but uh, so you look, you look at a source, and the source is seen as competent by others because others have um, already obtained something from that source information or, or beliefs or whatever, and then therefore your bias. I'm quoting. Uh, I'm doing air uh, <laughs> quoting here. <laughs> your bias towards. Uh, um, um reproducing or accepting or 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 internalizing the um uh, whatever the source it's is putting out being a belief or or practices or or information basically information in general so how 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 would you how would you distinct how how you make a distinction between those two, two things because you know that I'm very critical uh, yeah. to the first so I just wanted to I... make a clear cut there I see them I see them still as beliefs here, right? Because I see the belief that a group of people believe that a source is accurate mm-hmm. is still a belief because I I don't when I look at um the sources that right-wing folks use that's a population of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's say 10 million people, say I'm standing in the middle of those 10 million people. Mm-hmm. I still because of what I believe Uh, how I believe my beliefs differ from their beliefs. Mm-hmm. I won't take them as valid sources of information. Mm-hmm. So here you have, a again, a hierarchy of beliefs thing where if I believe that I need to say I trust them because it, they will kill me if I don't, mm-hmm. maybe my my belief that self-preservation in this moment is more important mm-hmm. than my belief in taking a stand. I could also believe the opposite, um, Bruno being burnt at the stake by the Catholic Church in the 1500s. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, Yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of thing where it's still, do I believe that that group of people that trust the source are are effective at uh, making judgments about the truth? Mm-hmm. And this uh, this is actually like the set of studies I did a few years ago um, was exactly on this of the people that we share beliefs with, are they, do we take them to be accurate sources of information just because we share beliefs with them? Mm-hmm. And it seems like the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Like, They don't need to be any closer, any uh, epistemically, like any closer to the evidence gathering process than a journalist. But I can trust them because I share beliefs with them mm-hmm. uh, over the, the journalist who's maybe on the ground in a place. Mm-hmm. And you, you could you could very strongly share beliefs if only one other person, uh, while you, you could you could learn you could gather some information from a very very prestigious per, uh, source but if you're 
proximity on like your overlapping of beliefs with this only single person in the world, you would definitely prefer to gather information from this person. So like uh, that can definitely happen. Yeah. yeah, I I think that the the whole idea of a of a cult or any prophet yeah. uh, capitalizes yeah. on this idea, right? Yeah. It's just that uh, there is a whole world of information, 8 billion people, mm. but this one person telling me that everything there is wrong, but what they're telling me is correct, yeah. is literally the denial of the world and the acceptance of a microcosm. Yeah. And that's that's quite interesting. Yeah, well, so like, well th th there, is, there is an aspect on cults that... Um, the, 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 the presence of, of the group Create cre creates an, um, a second level of of benefits. Definitely. But what I was thinking about was uh, what I was thinking about was more like an abusive abusive uh, 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 relationship. Oh, like so where self preservation is evolved explicitly, yeah. like yeah. physical. Yeah. No, I, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean you, you. Let's say you have a partner, mm -hmm. and somehow throughout the years, this person made or convince you that you share a lot of those beliefs. So but you, you share, you didn't convince you. Like yeah. you, you became, you became, you, 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 you. Adopted their beliefs. Yeah, you adopted their beliefs. And every, like there is a lot of people around you and say, look, the, the things that you're believing, uh, actually they are not true. And a lot of people might agree with that person. You wouldn't change your belief for example, that you should get out of that relationship uh, as long as you believe that you're sharing a lot of beliefs with this person who is with you all the time. So that's what I was thinking. But I think I think the quote definitely can be used as an example. I think it's different levels, but I wanted to get to the extreme point to say, yeah, there is nothing uh, 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 prestigious uh, um, about this person that you are this abusive person that you are in a relationship with because nobody else believes that person but you but because you share so like so many beliefs with this person you think that's the best source of information that you can have this person is going to tell you how to live your life what you should do at what time and and when uh regardless of how many how how resourceful or how competent are the outside sources they're telling you that look, that's not how you should live your life. Yeah, I think there's a there's a crucial element here of of sort of a, a robustness of your identity, where if one person is the only other person you share all these beliefs with, then you don't have a very robust identity because it's if they go, you have no social support system. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of it, if not potentially all of it, is is dictated by our desire to build a persona which will survive in society. Mm -hmm. And so we adopt the beliefs that we feel will help us navigate that. And I don't think that it needs, I don't think that we are always aware of that. I think that the things that we feel we're driven towards are the things that uh, match that desire. So I don't need to think that being uh, a leftist is the strategic thing. It's just that maybe I feel that being a leftist is is the right thing to be, but that feeling is generated 
by my perception of the reality that I have、mm-hmm. and the type of person that I might want to be in that society. And I think that that's that ends up being really important. This idea that we won't be ostracized from our groups and that we will fit into the groups that we are part of.、Mm-hmm. When you get something like it, because what we can see, which is really interesting, is that folks who are susceptible to conspiracy theories. Are not those typically those folks that have very robust social networks? They have a lot、mm-hmm. of friends. They have a stable family.、Mm-hmm. They have a stable job. It's it's the people who don't have those things.、Mm-hmm. It's the people who are looking for a niche to build、mm-hmm. where they can get some kind of group satisfaction, this type of belonging. And so typically, it's the people who are ostracized from their groups, don't have a lot of friends,、uh, don't have stable relationships, whether、uh, romantic or family. And maybe potentially also they don't even have stable careers or things like that, where their engagement with the world is not necessarily stable. And they find groups of people, and this is why the internet is such a great tool for for generating conspiracy theorists. Is that you don't need to be in the same place to find each other. You、mm-hmm. can find each other online, and all of a sudden you walk around the world slightly more included into a group, but that group is virtual.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the internet has allowed for that, which is why we see conspiracy theories、uh, fully—I mean—promulgated in in today's world、mm-hmm. in in a very different scale than a hundred years ago, twenty, thirty years ago.、Mm. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to, to take the focus from because I completely agree with you. That's、uh, the, the, the is the social aspect,、uh, or what we believe that the, the social group is, or in like a natural. Drive towards surviving in societies and groups that that that's on the root of a lot of 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 our our behavior. Definitely the social behavior, because、uh, mostly what we're talking about when w- w- the transference of information from one mind to another, it is a social phenomenon. It's not a you can take it a very solipsist kind of like perspective. Yes, but uh, but uh, but it, it's happened. It's happening within the context of of people living in in societies.、Uh, I didn't wanted to take the focus because I completely agree with you.、Um, what I was mentioned before, because in the beginning I said that the way that I see, and the way that it makes sense for me to think about the word is that there is, and you definitely agree that there is degrees that you can look at the same thing happening. And when I mentioned in the, in the beginning is that well, we can look at the whole world. Uh, and things that happen, the whole world scale, but we can go down into the individual. And I was just reducing to a two-person kind of phenomenon. So,、sure. yeah. So、uh, this person can can have the belief that this this other only single person, it's all the social world that they can have. So that's the group that is going to maintain them alive. And that's 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 what I meant. I、yeah. I believe that it it takes a, a slight pathological turn over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's interesting because the the things that you and I push back against are、um, building towards this towards the same idea. They're coming from the same place, and the ideas that we're pushing against are also built on the same idea. Like because the idea of prestige and typical ideas of of Group influence are built on the same concept, which is that the the、um, groups are out there in the world, 
that we use the groups out there in the world to decide what to accept. And I think prestige bias is sort of built on something like this, where we look to society, we look towards individuals that are labeled as prestigious, and then we follow them. Um, but the movement that we're talking about now is shifting it towards placing it in in a more cognitive sense mm-hmm. back into the individual, mm-hmm. and then saying that their interpretation of their environments is what's critical, whether that's in a dyad or whether that's them interpreting society as a whole. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely, yeah. definitely. What's, what's what's happening? Yeah, I think I think the thing with the prestige bias is put it a focus on 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 you receiving uh, some kind of signal uh, um, that that's very well. It's very sim- simplistically explained and uh, when 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 we talked about it we were talking about like well there is something that happens on the social environment and there is something that we understand that happens in the social environment those things are there is there might be well there's something between it and that's what we're trying to understand and that's the precise thing that must be understood so uh that's that's not simplest at all. Mm-hmm. That's that's demand. Uh, it's understanding how how information is computated within the individual and how we make sense of it, and how that affects our decisions. Yeah. So then, um, maybe one of the things we can move into, unless you have another another topic, is mm-hmm. also just the idea of what information is in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that this is also an interesting sort of thing where we have, so something, something I think about a lot, right, is when we look at, when we look at climate change, um, a reality that at this point is, uh, inescapable given the evidence, uh, we know we're, uh, <laughs> going to be experiencing massive, massive effects in the coming decades of our, uh, exploitation of the uh, of the resources that we've that we've mined from the earth, but an interesting thought experiment is when I ask other scientists whether their belief on climate change would change if a large portion of climate scientists started saying, "Oh, we were wrong about climate change." Uh, how invested are we? How prioritizes the belief that climate change is real? versus the belief that we are scientists, therefore our fellow scientists who are climate scientists have the greatest access to information. Would we begin to doubt the institution uh, or the institutions that support most climate scientists and say, well, clearly um, big oil has gotten to our fellow scientists? Mm -hmm. Or would we say, oh shit, we've been wrong this whole time? And so that's an interesting. So what's what's more prioritized for us at this point? I think I answered that before. I I, yeah, I, I definitely have asked you before as well. Yeah. Um, um, oh. I think for for me, yeah. Uh, uh, the the the, um, the 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 thing to be believed there, from my perspective, it's how we understand the science is produced. So we are in the environment of science. And I think we are investing our times and lives in the environment of science because we truly believe that we are playing by the same rules, right? So we are being 
Oh, I think it, I'm not. Like we as scientists are playing by the same rules as those scientists. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. we are being peer reviewed. We are being scrutinized. We're being kind of checked and, and balanced by other people in our field that not necessarily wanted us to, to like they do not have, they, they might, but not necessarily want us to, 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 to put us out of the game or put us in the game and they are checking us by our ideas. So there's like blind peer reviewing. And so, yeah, this, this idea is good enough or not good enough, or this data is, was well collected or not well collected, or this statistical analysis makes sense. The inference that you make from this statistical analysis makes sense. This one doesn't make sense. So I think we both, like we are investing our time in, in, in life and that. So I think we have a belief that we are somehow uh, playing by the same rules than the, the climate change uh, scientists. Uh, although I, uh, I'm 100% sure that you also don't believe that happens 100% of the time. No. Yeah, it, it's this interesting thing where um, we have built our socio-ecological niches, our identities mm -hmm. on the idea that science is a valid enough process mm -hmm. uh, to believe. So we have a bias that the institution of science, while heavily flawed, and I think you and I are, are two people to readily admit flaws in the in the industry of science, mm -hmm. um, although the industry of science and the institution of science should definitely be disambiguated in people's minds as yes, two fundamentally different things. Um, that we that we have faith in the institution of science, whereas the industry of science is, is the more flawed one. Um, yeah, is that, I mean, if if climate scientists turned around and said the this was this was a big mistake climate change is not right then we'd we ought to believe them in the for the same reasons that we believe them in the first place mm -hmm. um the the likelihood of that happening in the real world with this example is so so much beyond uh <laughs> a a likely possibility. I just want to put that out there. Mm -hmm. But but yes, I mean it's it's a it's an interesting thought experiment because it it does force us to think about why we we accept certain information and why we adopt certain beliefs. Um, the other thing being, um, uh, I lost my train of thought. You go ahead. No no no. <laughs> I think I think I think there is a well. It's 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 complicated because because. We're believing that they are playing, it's not even playing by the same rules. We're believing that they are applying the same process that we do apply. So we pu we wanted to publish a paper, we write it, we, st we send it to someone, someone look at it and say, hey, uh, this idea doesn't make sense because of A, B, and C. And then you look at it and say, okay, yeah, that you're right, or maybe you're wrong, and I can prove that you're wrong. And so it is a process that we do. So it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a it's something. It's like pushing a nail into the wall. So you have done it before. You know how that works. And if everybody else pushes knows, like if you believe that they are pushing nails through the wall, yeah, you know that if they do it the right way, then you will be in the wall. You know, like uh, it's it's a process. So there isn't. I don't know. I I think I would make the distinction about 
about being able to to it's it's complicated because it's <laughs> publishing an article is not pu- pushing an AO into the wall but it's being able to understand how a process works and go you yourself going through the process and saying okay this process works and I tried and it does work and with, with the, the constraints and and then you say would you say like I believe that the process works or does the process work because if it it's processed in this way it does like it's it's an algorithm kind kind of kind of of of, of process like is is an algorithm believable or it's just ease so from my perspective it's just like yes if the science client the, the climate scientists are doing the thing right as i as i understand that the thing right to be done should be like that i am not believing them i am just certain that they did the process and that's the output of the process yeah i suppose i i take everything to be belief so i even if i feel a high degree of certainty i don't i don't believe i have a belief that there's no that there's no such thing as true certainty because i don't believe in an absolute truth and so there can be points that are made which might be valid criticisms that are addendums or nuances to associate with our acceptance of a particular statement and so in that sense that's why i say i believe that what they are doing is true and the belief the word the use of the word belief doesn't make it less doesn't make me less comfortable with the degree of accuracy I think that they're achieving. But the degree of accuracy is towards a self-defined procedural end in that we've built the process, we've built the tools, we've built the concept of each variable, and we've put all of these things in place. So they're all um, manufactured by human beings. And they're manufactured by human beings to produce reliable outputs Uh, but it's still the reliability of the output that we're taking as truth, not something like s- truth itself, mm. which whether it exists or not is up for debate. Whether it's accessible or not, I think no. You know, we cannot harvest the, the absolute truth from whatever reality we exist within. And I think that, that that to me is the main thing. That doesn't make me any less confident, I think, than you, um, but maybe as a maybe because I spent more time on the philosophy side. Yeah. For me, definitely. <laughs> well, I, I'm feeling it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's because it's an, it's an interesting thing because the, so when we look at, when we look at people um, out, outside of the sciences, it's, it's important to remember that an individual scientist doesn't have, they, they might have slightly greater or not even slightly, just greater epistemic access to their field than any of us outside of their field. Mm -hmm. But that one scientist alone doesn't constitute um, legitimacy of a belief. Like one scientist isn't enough. Mm -hmm. It takes the the consensus of of that field to actually determine what's, what's believable. And that's really important because the individual scientist can have flaws. 
they or they will have flaws and they will have biases. Mm -hmm. And the way we try to eliminate flaws and biases is by putting a bunch of scientists to the same set of problems and then seeing what comes out, how they can find the greatest common denominator of what they collectively believe. Mm -hmm. And everything else falls on the sidelines of individual sub-segments mm -hmm. of that industry. And I think that's also really important because sometimes a scientist comes on uh, television or, or makes a post or something. And if it's outside of their domain, then, I mean, feel free to discard it entirely as their opinion. But mm -hmm. even if it's within their domain, it has to be taken with a grain of salt of, okay, what does the field actually say about this? One, one neuroscientist making one claim about the brain isn't sufficient because 90% of neuroscientists could disagree with them. And I think that there's an interesting thing where when we move from what we try to do with science is, is built in procedural accuracy, meaning mm -hmm. limit the parameters of the errors, mm -hmm. right? Like how yeah. big the errors can be. And as we move towards greater and greater amounts of variables, basically, which happen as we move from from the hard sciences like physics and chemistry over into things like like biology and cognitive science, um, and then from there into more sociology and anthropology where the variables get very large, mm -hmm. the variance get increases with the amount of variables that we can't control. Mm -hmm. And I think that there, it's also really important because every, every field, like within field expert, will know how much error is acceptable mm -hmm. for certain findings. You know, you could have... Uh, a chemist would have much smaller error bars than us mm -hmm. as cognitive scientists mm -hmm. and cognitive scientists would have much smaller error bars than an economist. And what we're doing in some sense is built on the same principles, mm -hmm. um, but they're adapted to the questions that we're asking. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that, that's, uh, that's completely true that um, we might use the same process to tackle different problems and that create different uh, differences uh, on the um, on the outputs we get yeah. on the reliability of the outputs we get i think there's another problem as well that um, um as you said uh, well, well as, as you mentioned the idea of of um, of having fields on which you were you understand very well what's going on or having kind of like overlapping with other fields. It's just we cannot understand everything, even within our own field. Uh, so we kind of rely on other people to inform us about things that are actually relevant for us and for our process. And um, if along the, the chain something goes wrong, um, because because what I, have, what I was thinking is just like something that is good about it, that nobody... Um, no scientist wants to create or uh, create to produce work that is flawed. I, but that's insane to to believe, right? So what you do, you try to get around the most accurate and the better, the best ideas around you, because you don't want to produce flawed work. Um, so. Scientists start to look, well, what is start to be selected within, within a broad range of fields, of fields 
it's those ideas that survived the 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 the, the cry of of inspection of many different people were looking for the best ideas among those ideas out there. So that's the good part. So the the ideas that survived the cry of many scientists looking for the best are those ideas that became more widespread. At the same time, if one bad idea managed to survive the cry and pass along, it can also become uh, widespread when it's not checked. And we see that that happened in science, not, yeah. not once. Not only once, but a couple of times. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. I mean, we need to uh, understand that that the any theory of science that we have is a description built on trying to describe a set of patterns that we see of a defined set of variables that we've generated. Mm-hmm. So that that view in in science or the philosophy of science is something called pessimistic meta-inductivism which is the idea that we that theories are constructed and that they will be improved over time necessarily that nothing is perfect as is um it's also you could also um look at things that are very similar um like construct uh, constructivism or or instrumentalism uh, instrumentalist views of science basically see scientific theories as tools for better predicting reality, but not as definitions or uh, of reality itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important because when we look at uh, science, it the output of science is arguably the most accurate bits of information that we can have about the topics it speaks about. Um, but that that isn't necessarily the truth, like I was saying, like we were talking about before, which is that uh, looking at it as the truth is flawed. Um, mm. And so looking at it as this is a really good, reliable estimate, and it will be improved in ways that I can't foresee in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that that part that part's really important. No, no, I get it. I get it. And I, one other thing to kind of build on what you were getting at as well is um, uh, I was thinking about analogy of a house where everybody in a particular field, so in my field, I I know it as well as I would know, say, my house. Um, But within my house, there are a bunch of things that even if I know how they operate better than other people, other people might know um, their actual construction and how they work better than I do. So mm-hmm. I have a refrigerator, and I know how my refrigerator works. I know the inside. I know the appearance. I know what's inside of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how to build a refrigerator, and I don't know how to fix the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. But it's my refrigerator in my apartment. So uh, that's true of many things in my apartment. You know, I can change the light bulb. I know which light switch turns that light bulb on, but I didn't do the wiring myself, and I actually don't know how to do wiring. Mm-hmm. So. This is true also of fields in science where you know your house, you know the things in your house, you know how those things work, um, you know how to fiddle with them if they're not quite right. But if they're broken or if you have to make them from scratch, you need somebody in another field to help you with that because we're all taking conceptual and instrumental loans from other fields Mm -hmm. to actually build our science. And I think that that's the really beautiful thing about it is that Maybe some biologists build microscopes, but mm-hmm. probably they don't. 
and the engineers have built it. And you have a whole set of scientists involved with the engineers to help build a better microscope itself. Mm -hmm. And so these are, these are really interesting facets where when we look at a scientist, no, no field is done in a vacuum, uh, except maybe something like maths or, or, uh, or pure philosophy or something like that. No, for sure. I get uh, I get I, I I had some some thoughts when we were speaking but yeah. Yeah, you you Yeah, I got I got entangled on, on the ending of of your conversation and then I lost what, what I had. But yeah, you're talking about uh, um the point that, that yeah, we 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 do not have the cognitive resource to understand every single thing that we have to use to to make us uh um better scientists um that we rely on one another yeah we rely we... on other yeah we have to there is no other way to do it and uh, and yeah i think i get your point about um and i think i i i i, I can i can definitely put together what, what i said before about um, the climate change um uh scientists uh if they would give me the output of their research as saying there is no climate change, I still believe, in in these cases, believe as as you mentioned, the output to be true. What I said before is just like I don't, I trust the process. I do not believe the process. I trust that if you follow the algorithm that's going to be the output i think the output it's i have to believe on it because a lot of things could have not gone exactly as as predicted or the scientists maybe do not understand the tools that they were using or so on and so forth uh but yeah i i agree with you like it has to be, it is a belief on the output of that thing yeah yeah i i would also say it's a belief in the in the instrument in the, itself and in the, the process the itself. Yeah, yeah okay yeah. it's it's, it's fine it can I, I can tell i'm that. just I, i'm not like pushing back i'm just uh just putting it out there because I, <laughs> I think it it's an interesting sort of thing where um the the information we accumulate the ways we interact with our realities i things are malleable even when we think that they are not and then again, it's not like. Um, but do you think mathematics, like, are beliefs? So the mathematical output of an equation is a belief. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I've gone. Uh, it's one of the things that's an interesting sort of discussion when it comes down to when you're having conversations with people about uh, objectivity, whether you can move from epistemics to uh something like a metaphysics like do numbers actually exist mm -hmm. uh i think that to me everybody numbers or qu quantities or whatever yeah well doesn't matter and, and there's there's slightly different things i suppose right because mm -hmm. you've you've quantities of things and then the world of maths mm. um which yeah it it and it's an interesting thing because what what maths tries to do is well what it initially tried to do is provide a way to quantify our realities mm -hmm. and then what it what it revealed was 
a whole set of concepts that exist way beyond what we can experience and quantify. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite interesting. And that pure maths is a very interesting philosophy of symbol manipulation. Mm -hmm. And that we all contain our versions of that thing, of that process. Mm -hmm. And similar to, I don't, necessarily think that the language exists out in the world there are physical representations of what we use to communicate mm -hmm. but i think everybody has their own conception of what the language is mm -hmm. in that no i don't know if we can describe with words um exactly what we think about every word and how it's interconnected we have different, our own internal maps of, of meaning that we, that we use. Mm -hmm. And I think this is also true of, of numbers. And mm -hmm. I think this is also true of maths. It's not that I don't need to believe or not believe that one and one plus one equals two. I can accept that as a procedural output. Mm -hmm. I don't need to believe that it's right or wrong. Uh, I can just accept that this is the process. This is the output. Yeah. My acceptance of what, two is or what i believe tunis is i think that that's that's the, yeah, that's the, what I but, but, that, the, but that's what's exactly my point mm -hmm. that i trust the process mm -hmm. it's just because there is a level of complexity between the two things that we are comparing because what i was talking mm -hmm. about of like of the scientific process being an algorithmic process yeah. just like to reduce it obviously it's much more complex than that but i'm saying like look if you have thermometers in in the arctic and you measure every uh, uh, one like once a day for this amount of time, and then you plug in all equations and so on. And then you get an output of that out of that. The process is trustful. I mean, it's not a mathematical. Uh, it's not in the same in the same sense a mathematical process, but that's what I meant. That like okay, that's the process that should give an output that can be interpreted like that. The interpretation of it is a belief. The process is trustful. You're saying that you believe that the process exists versus you believe that the process is accurate. And I think these are two different things. Hmm. Like if I believe that the process exists, I think that that's, you'd no, have to have that I, belief. I, believe, I right? believe the process is accurate to give me Yes. Um, something. Yes, which which is what I'm saying is a belief. Which, yes, because exactly. you can have somebody who believes the opposite, um, and I think that that's also that the process does not give you something. Of course, and you can also have somebody that believes the process is slightly different from what you believe the process is, and you can also have people who will argue that science is not necessarily just right. the process itself, and I think that that's why I would stick with something like it is a belief. It's that. One plus one equal two is one of the most widely shared beliefs on the planet. Mm -hmm. But as you get to more abstract or complex mathematics, you won't have explicit beliefs about those things. And I could write an equation for you and give an output that's incorrect. And I would say, do you believe this? Mm -hmm. Whether you believe it or not, is it consequential? There is an algorithmic process. Some people will believe they know how to solve it. Some people will believe they know how to solve it and be incorrect. Yeah. And so that's why I think I still... Um, think it's important to look at these things as beliefs and nothing in absolutes mm -hmm. because even 
you or I could attempt to describe the scientific process and we could have different descriptions of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We could use the phrase, the process of science, and state that we believe that it's accurate. But when we try to define the scientific process, I don't think we could say that it just is yeah. out in the world. And therefore, I don't require a belief to define it. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, you're completely right. I, I, I would describe as observing, isolating a hypothesis, gathering data, using or like making an experiment. But I, I jumped into the gather the data um, and and test your hypothesis. That's what I meant. But like it's very blunt. It's very yeah. It's, but uh, you could, there's many things in between. You can describe it in different ways. Yeah, um, that's the because it's interesting because uh, I it, it's it's an interesting place you started because I would start at um, I would start at variable definition, and maybe this is just because mm -hmm. um, I go from from. Uh, outside in in terms of uh, or how I think about it mentally is from from theory to hypothesis um, whereas I know a, a lot of um, a lot of scientists also work solely with hypotheses mm -hmm. or work with hypotheses and then models mm -hmm. and they yeah, go yeah. they go models hypotheses hypotheses models yeah, yeah. Uh, for me it's it's the theory side in and the theory side is built for me on uh, an analytic philosophy grounding yeah, yeah. so it's always definitions first uh and then once we've defined the variables then we can begin the process um my most of my training is etology yeah so i work with observation yes, yes so i i That's look fine. at nature and i look for patterns and then from those patterns i i i create hypotheses so it's it's, it's uh, there's there is definitely differences even in how we we would see the process that's completely true yeah i think it's really fun it yeah. it's fun because the probably and maybe we don't Maybe isn't the best time to go into this, but there is an important distinction between uh, hypotheses, models, and theories. Mm -hmm. And these are things that that maybe we could chat about in a in a at a different time. But um, when you when you look at a hypothesis, it's a it's a directly falsifiable claim about rigidly defined variables, yeah. and then. When you have enough hypotheses, you can build a model from which to extract further hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, the model is about the interactions of variables themselves. Mm -hmm. And then the theory is the broadest of the three where you can posit sets of models, their interactions, and then the significance of those things. And mm -hmm. so you, you go from the micro-scale hypotheses to sort of this medium-level model to large-scale theory. And one of the problems and criticisms of certain fields is that they don't have, uh, you can have, you can sort of criticize fields at, at any point in this process, some where they don't have rigid enough hypotheses, but mm -hmm. they do have models and theories. Mm -hmm. And some where they have um, models and hypotheses, but they don't actually have theories. Yeah. Or that they skip the model point yeah. and then go straight from hypothesis to theory. And so th these gaps are funny too. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I think um, I really jumped the gun when I said um, the process of science. <laughs> we could have another episode just... What talking about what that is yes definitely that's a, that's very rich yeah and um maybe something shifting a bit towards the evidence gathering itself is something that's quite interesting is that humans so in the natural philosophy realm like 500 years ago what we would use are our senses mm -hmm. and we then developed a, a form of observation 
and the observation still relied on our senses. And I think one really interesting thing that happened, I think, I think beginning with the telescope, um, which was created um, by, if I remember correctly, a Dutch uh, optician who wanted to create better glasses for one of his clients, ended up realizing that refraction of lenses at different distances created a telescopic effect mm-hmm. and they started creating telescopes. And so that was the first tool used for observation, scientific observation, mm-hmm. that extended the capacity of our senses. Mm-hmm. And that is is a huge conceptual shift in what human beings do, which is super cool, mm-hmm. because now we not only rely on our senses, but what we do is we rely on our senses through tools that magnify our senses or take wide ranges of information mm-hmm. across different modalities and spectrums mm-hmm. and condense them to the senses that we can use, uh, usually sight uh, and sound, um, to, to analyze things, uh, whether it's a microscope or telescope or you know, a spectrometer uh, or you know, anything like the condensing of sound into this microphone. It, it's a lot of really amazing things that human beings have done to extend our uh, capacity and, and the bandwidth of information that our senses can perceive. Oh, definitely. Yeah, We're, with the advent of computers, we have simulations, yeah. which completely changed the game of observing nature in a, in a very, very, very complex way. Yeah, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, about simulations. Yeah, yeah good. No, no. Like, I, what does I it do for science? Yeah, no, I, don't, I, don't, I do not have so much to talk about simulations. I have been interested on on, um, on agent-based modeling, and I think that there's a really nice place to understand a fraction, a part of uh, of, uh, of social phenomena through this kind of simulation. And um, I had I had um, had some lectures and I talked to some really nice people, really knowledgeable people in the field. And I have heard um, many things that I, I think we sh- I could definitely spend some time talking about in an episode about talking about the process of science because it, it touched on some, some, some things that you already mentioned about modeling, about like things, about fields or ways to think about science and where there are models generate hypotheses which generate new models that come back with new hypotheses and um, I think that's a fun uh, uh, field to, to, to be looking at. I think it's also nice for us to, to, to be open uh, to the broad spectrum of, 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 of uh, understanding nature. So um, I'm, I'm, I, I will be happy to, to go a little bit further uh, on understanding how to use simulations to understand social phenomena uh, in the future. So I, I will be working on that. Um, I, will be, I will try my best to, to work on, on that direction. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just a part of the, the rich way that we can, we can make sense of what's, what's going on uh, in reality. Yeah, and just to, to add a few more words to that, because uh, I think the, the process is super, super interesting. Um, just so it's not left opaque, is that when when we're modeling something, what we're doing is deciding upon a set of variables and then parameters or mm-hmm. values that those variables might take, and then run interactions between the variables. Yeah, and and, and um, there, there's many different pr- properties, right, that you can do with modeling. So you can um, you can reduce the complexity of the words to, to very specific specific variables, or you can 
you can have a you, you can you can know exactly the variables that you wanted to model and uh and play with them just like take one this variable take this variable out take this one out put it in a new one maybe find out that there is one variable that uh you you do not know that is influencing there and you can like can discover with modeling so so you can scale up you can scale down you can increase complexity you can decrease complexity you can um you can play with um time you can uh you can just uh, things that would take like interactions that would take a long time to observe in nature you can speed it up you can just like create a, a time frame on where you see those interactions playing many times in a short period of time or you can um you can also uh, uh, um something that just escapes so you can play with time you can play with with scale so if you you can have a phenomenon that is really hard to observe in nature because of of the the amount of agents or amount of molecules or amount of of cells that uh, uh on which this phenomenon occurs and you cannot observe them all at the same time if you have a model you can increase it to the size that you want them to be if you have enough computer power so you can do all of those things and all of those things are part of the process or they're all tools uh, in the process of, of understanding uh, the phenomena that you're interested on. And uh, I think that's fascinating. It's really interesting. And I think it's very useful for, for social phenomena. Like yeah. they're using for many different things you can use to, 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 to understand the behavior of stars or particles or uh, chemicals or, or cells, um, molecules or, or people or so on. Like there is, there is also very there, there are constraints, but um, um, I think they are very well acknowledged uh, within the field, and they're not um, they do not both like the constraints are acknowledged and they they work well with 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 the power of the tools that they have. Yeah, I think one of the important things is the the removal uh, or the the selection of variables because you can't account for everything. And different fields, sometimes the definition between different fields is literally, it, sometimes they're trying to answer the same question, but the difference is the amount of variables they try to account for. Mm-hmm. When you have something like cognitive uh, psychology versus cognitive sociology, cognitive anthropology, sometimes the question is very similar, but the one is trying to reduce the variables as much as possible, mm-hmm. and the other one is trying to include as many variables as possible. Mm-hmm. And so you get this really interesting thing where it's great that we're having both being done mm-hmm. because they give, us, they give us two different types of answers. Because the, the, we, when we do statistical analysis, what we do is we actually test the impact of variables themselves. We can also do analyses to test how much the variables are actually impacting um, the variable that or variables that we're measuring. And I think the the really interesting thing is that we can say something like, okay, these three variables make up 95% of the variance in my variable that I'm measuring, which would be a hugely strong effect. You know, you usually don't get that in cognitive psychology. Um, but when we do things like this, when we reduce it, um, we can still, there are certain questions where we can simplify the question enough 
and the variable that we're measuring enough where we can account for a large amount of variance uh, just with a small set of variables. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to put that as an uh, amendment to anybody who's listening to you describe modeling in this mm -hmm. really wonderful way. Yeah. And, and not... I think it, 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 yeah. Just to mention, yeah. uh, I, I was referring to, to what I, I have learned on... on computational modeling so it's um, exactly yeah, yeah but i i believe I that the mathematical similar. modeling uh would go in the same direction you could do the same absolutely the same things yeah and when we so. when we say simplify the problem sometimes obviously we are losing something uh there's always a sacrifice to be made but that uh we there are ways to demonstrate that the question that we are asking doesn't lose too much or the answer that we provide doesn't lose too much by the simplification of the variables involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We drifted a little bit away from the um, from the um, information or um, navigating uh, the the range of I don't know how to call it, the, the the ocean of of information <laughs> that we are drowning every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I but think, uh, I, I think we probably covered a good amount. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. I went. I wanted to to reflect. So I, I think I had this idea to reflect a little bit too because uh, a lot of people there might feel very anxious uh, with a lot of things that they see on the media every day, and I wanted to 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 just like to send this message that, um, um, heads up and. Um, just keep critical um, and uh, try to try to be patient with with um, with 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 the process of understanding what's going on. I think everybody's on the same board. It's super stressful and it's super. It makes you anxious. Well, uh, dealing with media and information all days, um, and it's because um, some of the things that we mentioned uh, now in the last hour. Um, the implications that information brings uh, within our um, our cognitive well-being, um, some things related to the way that our species are socially um, construct, socially dependent, or our our drive to to depend on each other to survive, um, and most of the phenomena that we see out there on. Inform on the availability of information might be strongly related to um, personal interests or like interests of institutions, interests of this 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 personas that we or these things that we talked about. But you can add uh, something no, sure. on that direction. I think I just wanted to close in the note of bringing back to what we propose to to, to be talking a little bit about, but. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great note to end on. Um, is that a lot of people a lot of people are in the same boat, and that we can take steps to be better informed, but then also have to take steps to uh, understand our place and uh, also understand what it takes for us to be uh, better agents. And sometimes that's rest, and sometimes it's uh, sort of refreshing ourselves. Uh, emotionally and cognitively uh, to make sure that we can do the types of work that maybe uh, make us feel slightly less powerless uh, in in global affairs. Mm -hmm. Right on. That's great. All right. Thank you. Thank you.